couple things to celebrate. Uh, there's some folks in our congregation uh, that, that ran their first marathon. Coach Jewell. Yeah. Uh, or half marathon. There are several people there that we've been raising money for World Vision. That kind of took place yesterday. If you, if you completed that, just raise your hand up today. There's a few folks in there. Yeah. Good job. I was really surprised that Jake could stand to play the guitar. That was impressive. Um, hey, also, there's a little team in, in St. Joe, St. Joe Central Cross Country that, um, you know, is coached by somebody. I don't know who. Um, but they got second in both their races yesterday, um, moving on to sectional. So, yes. <clears throat> Actually, three out of the four coaches come here, me and, and Alyssa Van Belkum, and then um, Zach helps us coach too. So, proud of those folks. Um, if you're new here today, which I know some of you guys are, you're visiting with us. We've been going through a series um, called Full of Grace and Truth. That's how John kind of described Jesus as he came. He was this perfect blend and balance of both grace and truth. And we've been taking a look at how he then extended that grace and truth in some of these encounters that he had with folks in Scripture, primarily kind of individual encounters that he had with with people. And we've also been kind of evaluating ourselves. How do we do at extending grace and truth and being a better blend of those two things? Uh, as opposed to maybe how we're kind of naturally wired towards one end of that spectrum or the other. How do we grow in coming towards the middle to be a better reflection of Christ? So throughout this series, I hope you guys are, are picking up on the fact um, that Jesus is constantly turning things on their head. For the Jewish religious leaders, as well as Jesus' 12 disciples, they're consistently being challenged about their assumptions of who is in the kingdom of heaven, and who is out. Many of the Jews wanted to believe that because of their ethnicity or because of their commitment to following the Old Testament law and and all the man-made rules that religious leaders uh, were, were bringing up or the fact that they were considered clean, which meant in their society they didn't have some kind of disease, illness, disability, which at that time people equated with being punished for some sinful thing they had done. So if you were doing all those things, then then you were in the right place with God. But in looking at several of Jesus' encounters so far, we've seen him welcome uh, the disabled. We've seen him welcome um, the sick, lepers, demon-possessed. We've seen him welcome Samaritan uh, sinful woman, uh, a Gentile woman that we looked at last week. And so... Basically, it's, it's been kind of a who's who of people that the Jews would have considered themselves better than. And these are the people that Jesus is raising it up and says, no, these people are welcome. And not just that. <clears throat> Jesus raised up a fair amount of those nobodies that we've talked about in these past few weeks to the self-righteous Jewish crowd. And he said, not only are those people welcome, but they're actually modeling a kind of faith that I wish you had. They actually get what we're doing here maybe even more than most of you. And they're light years ahead of you in this conversation of grace and truth and you could learn something from these people that you despise and look down on. So I think it's extremely important for us to grasp and continue to wrestle with uh, this reality that Jesus was a very tough pill for the Jews to swallow. For the conservative elite, and what I mean by that are the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, you've heard of them in Scripture, 
And what they were allowed to do by the Romans is, so these folks were kind of the, the guys that would lead the Jewish people in terms of religion, um, just kind of some of the civic things. They would, you know, handle disputes and, and try cases and all that stuff. The Romans kind of allowed the Jews to kind of govern themselves in a way as long as they stayed quiet. And so they gave the Pharisees and the Sadducees a fair amount of power to, to wield on their people to kind of, hey, you can keep worshiping your gods and going to temple and all that stuff as long as you kind of keep everything in order, okay? We don't want riots and revolutions and all that stuff, which is why when Jesus comes along and all of a sudden thousands of people start gathering, they start getting nervous, okay? So these guys were, were about trying to keep the peace so they could keep a place of status even under Roman authority. So for, for Jesus... Jesus was way too liberal for those guys, way too liberal. He, he did all the wrong things. He healed people on the Sabbath, which was a total no-no. Into his circle of 12, he invited tax collectors. Into his larger entourage that kind of followed him around, he invited prostitutes. He, he invited not former prostitutes, right? Let me, let me clarify that, right? But also, even within his, his circle, there were revolutionaries. If you see um, in, in, in the description of disciples, you know, like Simon the Zealot, the Zealots were ones that wanted Rome to be overthrown. They, they wanted to rally the people to, to start a revolution. And these were people that Jesus invited in to his inner circle. While also, so he's doing that, while also consistently criticizing the church people and telling them that their head knowledge about the Bible, or their ethnicity wasn't going to be enough to save them. Jesus was scandalous and revolutionary, which really makes me wonder this. If he showed up in our country today, who would he raise up as an example of faith that would really disturb us, that would really make us wonder, is Jesus losing his mind here? Or, possibly, whether we know him as well as we think we do. Today we're going to be diving into a story that's recorded in Matthew chapter 8. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, you can do that. It's page 882 in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 8. And as a backdrop to this story today, we have to remember the context of the Jewish people at Jesus' time, they were an occupied nation. Okay, they were subjects of the Roman Empire, and so there would have been an occupy, occupying military presence in their towns. There would have been Roman-appointed governors that would have overseen uh, all of, you know, any legal or laws or, or, or punishment. Um, so that was kind of the context, um, and ultimately, obviously, Caesar controlled everything. So important details as we head into the story today. So let's look at verse 5 of chapter 8. It says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. So just to begin with, um, Capernaum. We, we need to understand that that is now, Jesus as an adult, as he's begun his ministry, that's kind of now his, his new adopted hometown. Okay, if you go back to Matthew chapter 4, it says that Jesus left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum. It's also where we know Peter uh, and his family lived. So Jesus, that was kind of his headquarters uh, for his public ministry years. 
So Capernaum, compared to some of the other places we've seen in Scripture the last few weeks, is a fairly safe place for Jesus to be, okay? Um, that's where he was welcomed. The people knew him intimately. They'd heard a ton of his teachings, seen a lot of his miracles and healings. If you look a little further down in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, you'll see that it says the people brought all kinds of people to Jesus, and it says he healed them all. So in verse 5, this Roman centurion approaches Jesus with a request. He says that he has a servant that's sick and needs to be healed. And this Roman soldier, a centurion, is a commander of a hundred Roman soldiers. So this guy has a little bit of status, a little bit of authority, but he's seen Jesus heal people before. He was probably kind of stationed around Capernaum. So he knows of Jesus. He's seen the things he's done, knows what he's capable of. And that all sounds fine and good, right? This guy comes, knows what Jesus can do, wants a healing. But again, guys, we've got to see this through the lens of the times, okay? So remember, you've got some people on Jesus's team here. Who's, who are wholeheartedly committed to overthrowing Rome. And here is a Roman soldier, a commander, coming to Jesus asking for a favor. And you've got to imagine that that doesn't sit well with some in Jesus' inner circle here. It's a complicated situation. Now, there's some interesting facts about the centurion that may have lessened the shock a little bit. What did you guys notice about his posture just in those two verses? What did you notice about the centurion? Maybe makes him a little bit different. Yeah, man. He dresses him as Lord. Dresses him as Lord. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty significant for a Roman to address a Jew as Lord. What else? He calls what? His soldier. His soldier servant. He said, "Yeah." So he's got, well, it's, it's actually a servant in his home, okay? So, but here's the thing is that in Roman society, a servant who was probably Jewish <laughs> um, is, is nothing to them. I mean, they're like a dog. If you look at Roman historical documents, like a servant, if they're sick, you just throw them out and let them die and get a new one. So the fact that this guy had compassion for his servant, that's, that's different than, than the norm, Okay? So there's some things here, and I love the fact, too, that you can see he's coming and he's asking for help, right? As a Roman centurion, he could have come and said, hey, I know you can heal people. I'm commanding you to come and heal my servant, right? Or else, right? He could threaten them. There's all kinds of things he could do, but he comes and he asks for help, right? Another translation, it says that he begs or pleads for help. So right away, we see that this soldier is validating Jesus' authority over his own. Okay, and that's huge because Jesus was a poor, blue-collar Jew. I mean, he didn't have any status, really, in society. And I think it's interesting that Matthew, right, because these gospel uh, writers are all kind of picking and choosing what stories about Jesus are we going to put in. And he picks and chooses this story in particular and, and one, one commentary I read this week, it says it demonstrates a call to missions work that demands that Christ's followers abandon ethnic and cultural prejudice. If we're going to be on his team and be about his work as followers of Christ, we have to abandon cultural and ethnic prejudice. 
Now, remember from the Sermon on the Mount, okay, we're in Matthew chapter 8 right now. The Sermon on the Mount is covered from Matthew 5 through 7, and it was kind of Jesus' big teaching at the beginning of his ministry where he lays out kind of the kingdom values of what it means to follow and be a follower of Christ. And he had just finished that teaching in chapter 7. And now we're, we're in the chapter 8. And so as we've talked about before, we have to pay attention to what's on either side of the stories to get a context. So Jesus has laid out some very hard truths. And then we go right into, after he heals the leper in the first part of chapter 8, the next story is this Roman soldier comes to Jesus. And you can imagine the crowd is just like, hmm, this is going to be interesting. How is Jesus going to handle this? Okay? And remember in his teachings in Matthew 5 through 7, you will find that whole passage on, on your enemies. And Jesus is not satisfied with us treating our enemies just respectfully. He calls us to love our enemies and to pray for them. And so here comes an enemy, a Roman commander. What are we going to do, right? Jesus' words and actions were always challenging the disciples to push their boundaries wider of who it is that we're supposed to love and serve. Even this Roman soldier who's occupying, occupying your city, who in a moment's notice could snap his fingers and have you killed, even he is valuable. Even he is worth my time, my compassion, my love. Okay? So obviously, noticing the humility, the kindness, the centurion, the showing towards his servant, Jesus replies in verse 7. Take a look at that. It says, Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Now, if you were just reading this at home, that would probably be kind of a throwaway line. Okay? But when you understand the implications of it, it's really interesting because Jews did not go into Gentiles' homes. Okay, Jews considered Gentiles to be beneath them, and they considered them to be unclean, which meant that if you were a Jew and you went into a Gentile's home, you became unclean. What it meant to be unclean was that you can't go to church. <laughs> you can't go to the synagogue and the temple and participate in religious life until you get cleansed, and that's a whole process. So you don't chance it by going into a Gentile's house. And now Jesus is, is saying that, hey, I'm going to come over to your house, and I'm going to take care of this situation for you. And that was a big deal, okay? So the crowd is watching here. The Jews are watching. Is Jesus really going to go into this Gentile's house, this Roman's house? And the cool thing is, is that the Roman knows that this is a dicey situation for Jesus because look at how he responds in verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So this soldier is actually like looking out for Jesus. He's like, I don't want your reputation to be soiled here, rabbi. Okay, you're respected, you're well-known, you're doing great things. Okay, so if you just stay at a distance... And you just say the word, I know it'll be done. This guy had a, had a sense that he understood authority. He knew that when he told his soldiers to go and do something, they did it. And he knew that the weight of his commands carried the weight of Rome, of Caesar, right? But he also knew that Jesus' words carried the weight of the Heavenly Father. 
So this centurion we're learning here by what he's saying and how he's reacting is what they would have called a God-fearing Gentile, okay? So it's somebody that wasn't Jewish by ethnicity, but somebody that acknowledged and worshiped the, the Jewish God, Yahweh. So this whole interaction of how this guy is responding to him just kind of blows Jesus away. Look at verse 10. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. It says Jesus was amazed, and other translations say that he marveled. And I love that word a little bit more. Because to marvel at something kind of implies kind of a, a sitting back and kind of like taking it in for a moment. Like, wow. Like, Jesus like was caught off guard and didn't know what to say there for a moment. Okay? So, so that's kind of the scene. It's, it's kind of like... Um, you know, like when you're, and me, maybe it happens in the car, like I'm driving, and maybe you've had these encounters like with your little kids, you know, and I'm thinking of, of my six-year-old Xavier in his car seat behind me, and you're driving along, and you're kind of talking, and when, you're, when your little kid sometimes says something really profound, and it could be about spiritual things or just about life in general, or sometimes uses vocabulary that you didn't know they knew, <laughs> and you're kind of sitting there looking in your mirror, and you're like, dang, kid, that, that was good, you know? Way to go. I just kind of picture Jesus kind of looking at this guy and be like, man, you get this, Roman soldier. Way to go, right? But what Jesus said next was pretty strong. Jesus makes an example of this Gentile to his disciples as somebody who gets it about faith. And, and he says that this guy's faith, this Roman soldier, is greater than anyone in Israel that I've seen so far. That should have felt like and was intended to be a slap in the face. He's saying to his Jewish brethren, hey, I should be finding that faith in you, but I'm not seeing it to the level of this guy over here that you guys kind of look down on or maybe even consider an enemy, somebody you despise. He's got it figured out in ways that you don't. And as hard as that statement was to hear, though, Jesus was just getting started. Let's look at verse 11. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Guys, again, it's, it's hard for me to communicate to you the, the loaded language that Jesus is using here. And how these comments would have impacted his listeners. Because the Jews at that time really thought that they were the only ones that were in. They thought that in the kingdom of heaven, it was just going to be them uh, sitting down at the banqueting table with the great church fathers, the Abraham, Isaacs, and Jacobs, and that everybody else was, was out. Now Jesus is saying that there will be many people there. He says from the east and from the west, from the, all the corners of the world, 
different races and languages and ethnicities, the doors are going to swing wider open, guys, than you could ever imagine. And this shouldn't be a surprise. Way back in Genesis, at the very beginning, when Jesus chose Abraham, and he said, I'm going to make for myself a people, the Hebrew nation, that will be mine. He communicated to them from the start, but guys, listen, you're going to be a gateway for others. Look at Genesis 22, 17, and 18. God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. But here's the reality. Just like the Jews at that time, we Christians today, we kind of like to think of ourselves as special. We kind of like to think that we're on God's team and that we kind of get it in, other, in ways that other people don't. Jesus' teaching was extremely offensive. Even the disciples that had been around Jesus a little bit more would have been really wrestling with the implications of what he was saying. Because we kind of want, you know, the people that are kind of in the club to kind of look like us. We kind of like it when it's, when it's comfortable, people that we're comfortable with. I kind of thought of a, the best example I could think of is like, you know, especially like fourth, fifth, sixth grade when you start having the, like the birthday party sleepovers, right? Kind of a big deal. The kids from class get invited, right? And so your, your best friend invites you to this party, and then he tells you who's coming, and he invites the weird kid, kind of the awkward kid, and you're just like, dude, why'd you ruin the whole party by inviting that guy? Now the whole party's going to stink, man. What are you thinking, right? Because we kind of want it to be who we want it to be, what's comfortable, and Jesus is just ruining everything. I thought we were just going to sit around the table, and it was going to be great, right? Now you're inviting all these other people in? Come on. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying more and different people are going to be allowed into heaven, right? That's kind of verse 11. But guess what's also true? Verse 12, Jesus goes a step further and says, some of you guys that think you're in are actually going to be cast into hell, where there's, as it says, weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) Guys, this is why the religious leaders of Jesus' day wanted him dead. Do you understand what he is saying to these people who have committed their whole life to memorizing scripture and thinking that they're they're getting it right and they're kind of at the top of the religious food chain? (laughs) And now he's saying to some of them, you don't get it, And in fact, you might actually be completely wrong and end up in hell. I mean, that is some tough truth that Jesus is dealing out here. Check out this quote I came across this week. It says, Jesus reminded his Jewish listeners that just as the Gentiles' racial identity was no automatic barrier to the kingdom, their racial identity was no guarantee of the kingdom. You see, it cuts both ways, right? So where does this story leave us? Well, a few things jumped out to me. 
First one is that in those last couple of verses that we just looked at, Jesus makes it really clear that, that there is both a heaven and a hell. I know there's a lot of debate sometimes in Christian circles about whether hell even really exists, okay? Not only does he say that those places both exist, but he also communicates to us that, I, that we're going to be surprised at some level of who ends up where. We're going to be caught off guard a little bit. So there's an urgency to this reality that, that those two places exist. The, the apostle Peter writes later on in his letter, he says, God desires that no one should perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. So I have to check my heart at times and make sure that I'm not too pleased with this thought that I'm in and be kind of satisfied with that, that my heart doesn't break for those who are currently choosing to either ignore or reject Christ because the reality of hell is so tragic. Guys, we need to be praying that God would break our hearts for those that are lost. The Jews weren't doing that. They were just satisfied that they were in especially for those who act and believe so differently than we do, our enemies, so to speak. We need to be praying, God, that I would understand that those people are just as worthy of God's grace and truth and compassion as love as I ever was. So that's one thing I think we need to hold in tension. Secondly, this story just continues to build the case that God's love is for everyone. His grace is limitless. And the people he wants to use to teach us about faith sometimes is going to be really surprising. Sometimes it's going to be a little child. Sometimes it's going to be um, a stranger. Sometimes it's going to be the downtrodden. Sometimes it's going to be our enemy. Sometimes it's going to be that someone who politically, religiously, just sees the world completely different than you do? If we are open, we will find that the truth can come from some really strange deliverers. So I want to ask you all this morning, okay, so hone in here. Who are you willing to learn from? Who are you willing to learn from? Are we humble enough to consider that God might want his grace or truth to come to us from a source that might be hard for us to swallow? Because as I read the word that we're going through each and every week, that seemed to be Jesus' pattern is that continually he would bring his disciples around and say, I need to introduce you to this cat who you think you're better than and doesn't get it so that they can teach you some things about faith. And just as a guy who's almost 50, it's hard to believe, I know. But listen, I'm going to tell you this. This is true. Some of the best lessons that I've learned in life have come from people that I would have never chosen to be my teacher. Can I say that again? Some of the best lessons I've learned in life about faith have come from people I would have never chosen to be my teachers. So that's kind of just a word of challenge on the receiving end of grace and truth. 
But the, the converse of that, the flip side of that is also true, that God might want to use you to be a deliverer of grace or truth to someone that you would never choose to extend grace and truth to. And so that's the tension that we live in, guys. And even as we head to the communion table today and, and we reflect on this truth and this grace of God's body broken and his blood poured out, I guarantee you that there were people in Jesus' circle who were struggling with the fact that Jesus was willing to give his life to people that they felt didn't deserve it. The ones that, that nailed him to the cross, that spit in his face, the Pharisees and Sadducees who put him on trial and tried to convict him, God's love was for them too. And so we have to remember, guys, and, and you know, there were some things brought up last week that were hard to hear and troubling a little bit for some people. God's, God's love is for everybody, and we've got to navigate these, these things in ways that um, stay clear to the truth, but also stretch us in grace that ways are going to make us, ways that are going to make us really uncomfortable at times. Because when I read about Jesus and the people that he used as examples for things, I'm like, man, that's, that's challenging, that's stretching. <laughs> that makes me rethink a little bit how much I think I get or who I think gets it or who I need to love or extend grace to and all those things. Jesus is inviting us into a very difficult conversation that we need to wrestle with wrestle with the tension, okay? Uh, we're going to do communion here. If you've never done communion with us before, um, we've got um, the bread and the juice here. We're going to give you a couple minutes of silence. The ushers are going to dismiss you. You come forward. You can tear off a piece of the bread from one of the servers, dip it in the cup, and take it there. We also have a gluten-free option that will be down at that end. Um, so would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you, <clears throat> man, just for how challenging you are. Lord, we see like you would deliver a message about, hey, loving your enemies and praying for them. And then you would, you would bring your disciples right into a situation where they're forced to deal with that truth. And Lord, that happens so often as we learn things in your word. We go out from here on Sundays and we go back to work on Mondays or get in the car with our family right after church. And we have the opportunity to apply this very hard lesson that you've got for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to expand our hearts, Lord, in ways that help us to love and serve people that are just not comfortable for us, with people that, that rub us wrong or that we disagree with, um, or we just think of ourselves better than. Lord, I know I've got a lot of pride in me, and I need to be humbled in a lot of ways. Lord, I pray that we would be people that could, could dole out grace and truth liberally, to people that we maybe don't even feel like deserve it in our own flawed opinion. Lord, that we would also be willing to be recipients of grace and truth from sources that we wouldn't choose. And God, I pray that our hearts would be broken for the lost. God, that we wouldn't be so satisfied with being in, that we would lose sight of, of just how desperate people are to know you, even if they don't know it. So God, speak to us during this time. <laughs> Convict us of our sin. God, help us to repent and change so we can be more like you.